Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th Wartime Diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating Wartime Diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. The last time we had people over, we were already feeling separate from each other. We were feeling disconnected more and more. It really was catching up with me. I I was headed towards a nervous breakdown, basically. But the last time we had company over, it was a friend of ours who was just becoming involved in Torah Judaism. And a whole group of them were coming to Israel. And she wanted to give them a very special Friday night. So who's she going to bring them to? But Yaakov and Chavez in the Jewish quarter. Because that's where they'll get the perfect epiphany. I was off the whole night. Something was not right the whole night. That's Yiska Smith. She's 64 years old and she's actually my neighbor in Nachlaot in Jerusalem. I pass by her house three times a day when I take my dog Nomi out for a walk. Anyway, Iska was born in Long Island as Jeff, Jeff Smith. The Smiths were a traditional, conservative, big-C Jewish family. The dad owned a local plumbing supply store, and the mom was a dedicated homemaker. They had three kids, two girls and Jeff. 
In our story today, we'll hear how Jeff became Yaakov, and then Jeff again, and then Jessica, and finally Yiska. But this isn't just a story, or isn't only a story, about gender transition. It's really much more about a dilemma, one that doesn't have an easy solution. You know, as we've been working on this episode over the past few months, I've thought a lot about a good friend of mine. Let's call him Akiva. Akiva's been married a long time, nearly 20 years. He and his wife have three kids. They got married when they were really young, just out of the army, basically, which means like 21 or 22. And when they got married, Akiva was religious and right-wing in Israeli politics. So was his bride, Efrat. And that was sort of the premise or foundation of their marriage. They joined a community of other religious right-wingers in the West Bank and sent their kids to religious right-wing schools. The only problem was that over time, Akiva began to change. Actually, today I would say he's one of the most secular and left-wing people I know. But I'm one of the only people who knows that. You see, Akiva feels that he made a commitment to Efrat to be a certain kind of person, to give her a certain kind of life. And even though he no longer fits the part, he feels that he has to continue acting out this charade because of that promise he made to her. That being true to his own identity is secondary to the unity of his family and community. Honestly, I've never really understood this position. It seems very sad and painful. But on today's show, with Yiska's story, we'll look at the other alternative, which seems just as painful and hard, at least in some ways. Anyway, let's go back to that Friday night in 1990, in Jerusalem's old city. Yiska, then still Yaakov, met a group of guests at the Western Wall, and then led them home for a Friday night meal. I remember walking up on Rehov HaKinor, which goes uphill. I remember walking up it and almost stopping. I had like 20 people behind me. I said, God, I can't do this anymore. This is it. You've got to help me. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. It was probably one of my most real prayers in my life. I I just begged God to please rescue me from this. And when everyone was leaving, everyone was saying what everyone usually would say when they left. Oh, what a beautiful family. What a beautiful Shabbat. What delicious food. And each time I would get these compliments, it would be like another dagger, another dagger, another dagger. And this one man came up to me, one of this woman's relatives, and he said, can I talk to you for a minute? Uh, alone. And I thought he was going to really lay it on, like, oh, you've just changed my life. Because I used to get that. So we went to another part of the, of the house that was more private, and he said, I'm going to tell you something, and I please hear me. Please hear me. That was an amazing act you performed for us tonight. Take care of yourself. Whatever is wrong, take care of you. I told my prior wife exactly what he said. I said, it's over. This is it. God answered my prayer. I slept that night for the first time like I hadn't slept in years.
Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine. And our episode today is called, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Thanks, Shania. We first heard about Yiska a while back from reporter Molly Livingstone, who then spent many, many hours interviewing her. I asked Molly to step into the studio with me. Hey, Molly. Hi, Mishi. Hi, Dave. I'm good. <laughs> so, so <laughs> Molly, can you can you set the scene for us? Like, where where were you recording in in Yiska's home? Right. Right. We were in Yiska's home in Nachlot, which is a part of Jerusalem. It's kind of the hippie area. Her house. It's small. It's quaint, and it's kind of what I expected from her. She's a very inviting person, and her home was very warm and friendly. Describe Yiska a little bit. Like, what what does Yiska look like? Yiska is tall. The first thing I notice about her every time I see her is when she talks to you, she looks you in the eyes. She dresses conservative, but kind of bohemian. She gets her nails done, and she uses her hands a lot when she speaks. So that I definitely remember. She has a different hairstyle. Every time I see her, it's like she's trying to play it up, play it down. She's, she's seeing how she looks in different ways and how she feels. All right, so let's begin. Um, Molly, where, where do we start? So we'll start the story in the U.S. when Yiska was still Jeff. My whole growing up was, was a nightmare. It was like being on a... You know that, how you hear about some of these Broadway shows and you hear that they, they've been running for like 10 years until you realize that they change the cast every couple of years. You wonder, how could someone go out on stage night after night after night for 10 years? That's what I did. Every morning when I woke up and I went out into the world, I was on stage. So it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult. I thought I was the only person suffering from this. I really believed that they would have me committed for being crazy. I have a memory. It was Christmas vacation. I had to have been right around 16, and one of the guy yells out to me, Jeff, why do you have to walk like a girl? And I looked at him, and of course I was crushed. I was crushed because it was not meant to say, maybe you should transition, or maybe you're transgender, or maybe are you suffering from gender identity dysphoria? Can I be a support friend for you? I mean, he used it against me. He was making fun of me. I just said to myself, what does it even mean that I'm walking like a girl? I didn't even, I didn't even know what that meant. In my head, I said, hello. Tell me something I don't know. The internal conflict continued, and Yiska's life kept moving forward. She finished school, met a young lady, and got married. The newlyweds gradually shifted into an observant Jewish lifestyle. They were part of Chabad, and then they moved to Israel. Jeff became Yaakov, and Yaakov and Chava basically did what religious married couples are expected to do. I don't really want to discuss the private, private parts of our lives. Look, we put it into the world, six children, so you can draw your own conclusion. <laughs> you know, I felt a lot of pressure. I felt a lot of societal pressure. And without her meaning, I, too, I felt pressure from her that I behave like a straight guy. Otherwise, I'm going to lose her. And I didn't want to lose her because I really loved her. And also, I became very successful in my, in my programming in the old city. So that also made it harder, because I had to keep up this image more and more. 
With all that pressure, something had to give. And that brings us back to that Shabbat dinner we opened with, when a guest recognized Yaakov's pain and expressed his concern in a way that for Yiska was a sign from above. I told my prior wife exactly what he said. I said, it's over. This is it. God answered my prayer. And when you ended your marriage, it was under the pretense that you were gay? Yes. Are you gay? No, I'm not a lesbian. I'm a heterosexual woman. So you went from one lie to the next. I went from a 100% lie to a 50% lie. I knew for sure I'm not gay. But I also knew that as a woman, I was attracted to men. There's no way I would have dated a woman after my divorce. I mean, I, I hurt her enough. I wasn't going to hurt another woman. Was she angry with you, your wife? Angry? Mm. I don't know if anger describes it. She gave 100% of herself. Didn't compromise an iota. A loving, devoted wife, mother. Yeah, I mean, she was furious. More, though, she felt betrayed and abandoned. Yaakov actually continued to live at home with the family. But when a model couple suddenly gets divorced, especially in a small community like Jerusalem's old city, people get curious. And it wasn't long before word got out about the 50% lie, the story that Yaakov was gay. Soon, the news reached one of the Jewish quarter's most respected rabbis. He called me up personally. He was the type of person who never called anyone up personally. He had a battery of secretaries that would call people up. And when people would go to him to ask his advice, he'd wait two hours online. And he called me up personally and said, I need to talk with you. You need to come to my office at such and such a time. I knew it was, this was not good. I show up and there's no line. I knock on the door and he answers the door. And, and he ushers me in. He, couldn't, he didn't even look at me. I remember he did not look at me. And he brought me into his study, and I started to sit down. He said, don't bother sitting. This is going to take just a very few seconds. He said, someone as despicable and disgusting as you, I don't want sitting on my furniture. I said, okay. He said, it's been brought to my attention that you commit that perverted, disgusting behavior. And, and of, he said, I can't even say the word of being with other men. And you teach men, you teach young men. He said, as of this moment, if you continue, I will make sure your children are publicly humiliated. First, I didn't, I didn't even hear the second part. I said, I just went through a divorce. This is my only means of, to give their mother child support. He said, I'm going to repeat myself because I want to really make sure you understand what I'm saying. I really don't care about how she gets her money to feed these kids. You are not to teach men anymore. And if you do, your children will be humiliated in public. I said, wait a minute, did I just hear right? Are you threatening me with my children's well-being? He said, yeah, now you got it. I started to cry, and I just walked out. And that's when I took the kippah off. I said, no, 
I can't do this anymore. Not when it comes to my children's well-being. My whole life was crumbling. My whole life just fell apart. So Yiska packed up and moved to Tel Aviv, a city which is much more secular and gay-friendly, and most importantly, far away from her previous community. But it was also much farther from her kids. Yeah, it devastated them. I don't know if they've ever recovered from it. I've got to tell you, I always loved being with my children. The highlight of my week was when they would come to Tel Aviv and I got to make dinner for them. And we all camped out because I had a little studio. But I, I made deals with their mom that I wouldn't reveal everything. I didn't tell them I was behaving as a gay man. I didn't use that language. I still wore a kippah when they came. So you did this with the kids for how long? This once a week? For about eight months. And what made that stop? I couldn't, I couldn't live in Tel Aviv as a single non-observant gay man. I never fit into it. I was so shattered. I had nothing to hold on to. Yiska left Israel and moved back to the U.S., leaving the six children with their mother. Another devastating decision. Yeah, it was really hard. A few years later, one of the kids, who was then serving in the army, came to visit. He was religious, and Yaakov, who was now Jeff again, was not. It was Christmas time, and the son slept on the living room couch, right next to the Christmas tree. Sleeping in his dad's bedroom was the current Catholic boyfriend. Then that's when I started coming out, especially to the older kids. And of course it hurt, not because I was coming out as gay, but because I knew I was lying to them, my own children. And how did they handle it? You know, it's like one of them said to me years after that, they said... Every time we saw you, we felt we were going to get hit again. You know, it's like one makkah after the next makkah. Like it never ended. And there were still more changes to come. For Jeff, living as a gay man still didn't feel authentic. I was never a man. I was in the male body. Mm-hmm. I was always a woman. It was just the body. Like I was in someone else's body. I didn't realize there was a term called transgender till I was 41. It was the early 90s, and Jeff was living in New York City. I'm reading about this woman who, at that point, was 10 years older than me. I guess she's still 10 years older than me. And she had undergone what was called gender transition. She was born transgender, lived on the Upper East Side as a man, married. Once her children completed their college education, she decided she had to come out to her wife and children and begin her transition. And I'm reading this, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, she's just like me. This is like my story, only I didn't know that this could happen. So then I'm thinking, well, if one person is there besides me, there's got to be at least another one or another five or another hundred. And that led me to research even before the internet. But for the next couple of years, I started reading articles and the words transgender, transsexual, sexual reassignment surgery, transition, started becoming in the forefront of my mind. It was like someone gave me the key 
for me to unlock the prison door that I was held captive in my whole life. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What made you actually call the doctor to make that switch? I just woke up on my 50th birthday and I felt so lonely. On that day, none of my children acknowledged that it was my birthday. My siblings did not. No one in my family did except my mother. May she rest in peace. I felt very lonely and alone. And I said to myself, and then I guess I was talking to God, I can't do this anymore. I couldn't pretend that I'm straight, male. So why am I pretending that I'm a gay male? I feel I'm living, once again, someone else's life. And I knew what I had to do. So when I made the appointment, the first question they ask you is, have you begun your real-life experience yet? You have to actually live in the world as a woman before the surgery for a year. And only you know when you begin, and only you know if you cheat or compromise. Like, they don't have a beeper. It's not like, you know, you're on house arrest (laughs) and they trace you. They have better things to do. It's like your life, but they want you to be able to do this. So that's when I started really dressing as a woman. I remember the first day that I said, today is it, September 19th, 2004. I was traveling to visit some friends in San Francisco. I was probably wearing like tighter fitting top. I probably was wearing a bra, although there was not much to really (laughs) keep up. (laughs) So I'm at the airport and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to San Francisco and I am ready and I'm going to do this. So I'm going to use the ladies room for the first time in my life. And I was so nervous walking in. And once I was in, I said, oh my gosh, this feels so normal. This totally feels normal. The tension in a men's bathroom, you have no idea. I mean, no one talks to each other. No one looks at each other. They're all uptight. They don't want anyone to think they're gay. You know, I mean, no one would say, oh, I really like your shoes. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, when a man says, what do you women do in the ladies room? They don't get it. It's a whole culture. And I just took to it like, oh my gosh, I'm home. Like, instead of me being nervous, I felt like, oh, I could breathe. Like, these people get me, you know? (laughs) And then I went for speech therapy. And the speech therapist told me, I have to give you the reality check right from the get-go. She said, you'll never talk like a woman, but you'll talk more like a woman. It takes incredible... I mean, I was with her for like two years. And she taught me a lot about how to emit a female energy rather than speaking like a woman. Now I'm very at peace with my voice, but at first I wasn't. 
And that for many older transgender women is a really big issue. Mm-hmm. And for me at one time it was. Now, I mean, now I don't know. I literally don't care. After this whole process, you were living as a woman. Mm-hmm. So when did you start dating as a woman? I started dating as a woman. I wanted to wait till after my surgery. I had read some terrible, tragic, tragic stories of transgender women who showed themselves as women to the world, but had, for various assortment of reasons, had not yet or chose not to undergo the surgery. And, and they dated men. And there were some instances when the men found out it ended very, very uh, violently, sometimes actually in death. I said, I'll wait. I'll wait till I'm complete. And then I just have to discuss my history, but I don't have to discuss my present. So I waited. Once all the medical procedures were behind her, she moved to a new city to start a new life. I was living in Seattle and reestablishing my life for the first time as a woman, as Jessica. And I went on, I put a profile on some of the dating sites and being insecure with my own transition at that time, I didn't write anything about my having transitioned. It was one mess after the next. Each one blew up in my face once they found out about me. When did they find out about you? Well, it depended. But the last time that I dated like this, this man, we went out to some place for drinks, and we were sitting and talking, and he said, you're such a beautiful woman, and I find you very intriguing, you seem intelligent. He complimented me. And then, I guess my hands were just on the table like this, and he stared at my hands. Now, that's another catch-all, because... Transgender women tend to have larger hands. His whole tone changed. Is there anything I should know about you? I said, well, this is our first date. I guess there's a lot to you. Should Is there anything I should know about you? <laughs> like, I turned it right on him. Like, what kind of, like, ridiculous question? If you want to know if I'm transgender, just ask me. So I said, are you referring to something in my present or my past? So I could give you the right answer. Because you're after something here. He said, well, more about your past. So I said, yeah, I was born transgender. He said, you know, I don't think I could date someone like you. Just imagining that you were a man one time. And he was quick, very quick to say, you know, I'm not gay. I'm straight. I said, well, I hope you're straight. That's why I would go out for a drink with you. You know, I'm not a lesbian. Like I kept bringing him back to what you initially saw in me was I'm a woman. So why would I think you're gay? And then he said, you know, you're, you're nice, but th- this is just a little bit too much for me, just thinking of your past. I said, you know, it's actually a little bit too much for me. He said, what do you mean? I said, if my past is a reason why you don't want to continue seeing me, your present is the reason I don't want to continue seeing you. I'm living in the now. I'm not living in the past. I went home that night and changed my profile. I put it right out there. I said, this is what I look like. This is my past. I said it one sentence. I underwent gender transition. I'm a f- fully transitioned woman. 
inside and out. The next day, I received an email through the site. This is what this man said to me. Any woman that is as beautiful as you and has gone through what you've gone through is a woman I want to take out for a drink. So a couple of nights later, we went out for a drink, and he said, you really went through a gender transition? I said, yes. He said, you know, I've been married a few times. I have children. You know, I've been divorced. Like all of us that are a little bit older, I've been around the block a few times. I feel like I'm with like a woman who's just always been born a woman. I said, well, I have been born a woman. That turned into a two-year relationship. And we got to know many of each other, members of, the, of our families. We lived together. But at the same time, I started to really go further and further into Judaism, and he's not Jewish. But he would come with me. He came with me to different Shabbat meals. He got to know all my Jewish friends. And he said to me one time something. I remember this one night. He said, you know, I'm not looking to get remarried. I see no reason for me to remarry at this stage in my life. I have my children. I have my stepchildren. You have your children. And we're living in an age where neither of us are, are religious. <laughs> he saw that I was becoming more religious. But if I were in the market to be married right now, I would ask you to marry me. You have made me feel more like the man that I need to feel like than my wives in the past. He said, there's just something about your femininity. And I said to him, you know, you've completed my transition. You have made me feel like the woman I always believed I really was. So we thought in a part of us we were going to live happily ever after, but I knew it wasn't going to be happily ever after. I wanted to come back to Israel. I wanted to be more observant. I davened so hard to Hashem, and I said, help me with Dan. He's so kind, and he, I just can't just break up with him. He never liked Seattle. He was a Texas boy, and he couldn't wait to someday move back to Texas, and I knew that. And there was no way I was going to Texas with him, that's for sure. One day, Dan, who was working at Boeing, picked Jessica up from work. He told her he had some disappointing news for her. I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm okay, but something came up in work today. And I know this is going to probably upset you, but they want to transfer me to an upper management, like executive position in Texas. And I would love for you to come with me, but I know you don't want to come to Texas. If anything, you're going to land up in Israel. I said, you're moving, you're leaving Seattle, and you're going to move to Texas? I said, Baruch Hashem! <laughs> and he already knew what Baruch Hashem meant. He said, well, are you happy? That, you know, do... I said, no, it's not that I'm happy that you're just moving to Texas, but I'm happy that God is helping us part ways with dignity and love. We both know you want to go back to Texas. So this is a dream come true for you. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Seattle. And Texas is not even on my list. I want to go back to Yerushalayim. So it's time that we do that. And he said, you are a woman that I will love the rest of my life. And I said, you're a man that I'll love the rest of my life. So 
if I could find a Dan who's Jewish and lives in Israel, <laughs> I'm here I am. <laughs> you know, I'm not looking to someone to be like Dan. That's not what I mean. Dan is Dan, and whoever Reuven Shimon Alevi will be Reuven Shimon Alevi. <laughs> When you came back to Israel, how did people treat you? Normal. <laughs> just regular, just what I wanted my whole life, just to be regular. Being in Israel as an out transgender woman who never hesitates for a second to say that I am, it's been so much easier than I ever could have imagined. Going to the shuk, going to the dry cleaners, getting on a bus in Eged, things like that. Just like regular, everyday living in Jerusalem, living in Yerushalayim, as a middle-aged woman, going about her business. Because there was nothing extraordinary about it, that's what was extraordinary about it. In Israel, Jessica changed her name to Yiska. It all started to feel, as she says, kind of normal. But for some people in her life, the whole transition thing wasn't so simple to accept. Her parents, for example. At first... It shattered them. It was a shock. It was, they were not prepared. There was nothing to set them up for this, where they could say, well, you know, we kind of wondered. So at first, it was very difficult for my mom, who I was always very, very close with. She passed away only four months ago. I didn't expect her or my father to say, oh, great, continue on your authentic living journey, or, you know, we're right here for you. No, her first response to me was, we've been with you through everything, but this already is too much for us. And I said, I understand. So for the first six months, it was really, you know, it was very hard for her to speak with me. And we always spoke several times a week. But she pulled back. And she needed time. She needed her time. After my whole gender transition was complete, eventually she, she said... I'd like to see you now. I really do. It's been over a year and we haven't seen each other, which for us was a long time. And she said, but your father does not want to see you. He's not ready to see you. He needs more time. I said, fine. Everyone needs their time. So with a lot of anxiety, Yiska flew down to Florida and drove over to her parents' house. So my mom came out as I pulled up. I got out of the car, she walked to me, and I, we could both feel that it was weird because it's the first time she saw me as Yiska. And we hugged, and then we started to cry. And she looked at me, and these were her words. She said, you do not have to explain anything. I see something in you that I never saw before. Peace. So while in my mind, this is very difficult, that now my son is like my daughter, <laughs> and you've gone from Jeff to Yaakov to Jeff to now Jessica and Yiska, like that's a lot of names for one mother. <laughs> she said, but in my heart of hearts, I really get it. And then she looked at me and she said, Jessica, I don't like your outfit. Let's go shopping. <laughs> and it was great because she would pick out a few outfits she liked. I'd pick out a few outfits I liked. Then we'd go back into the dressing room. She would try on for me. I'd try on for her. And I was in bliss. 
And then eventually, little by little, my father came around. Eventually, I was able to sleep over. He would go away and maybe sleep at my sister's, or he'd come back late. And then one day, he was ready to leave, and I was cooking something. You know the phrase, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach? Well, it worked. He asked my mom, what are you cooking? It smells really good. She said, I'm not cooking anything. Jessica wants to make dinner for me. He said, is it too late for me to stay? So that broke the ice. And now that your mom passed away, do you still see him as frequent? What's happened is, to my amazing surprise, is that my father has had more conversations with me now than the sum total of what I can remember in the past 50 years. I mean, he's devastated. And they were married 65 and a half years. Uh, they still loved each other a lot. And yet, when I talk to him, he opens up like he never did before. But Yiska's children, and this for her is the saddest part of the whole story, have a harder time making sense of her choices. My children don't talk to me anymore. None of them. Two of the six talk with me a little. Five years ago, Yiska began writing a book, a memoir, detailing her journey. I didn't ask for their permission, but I told them before it goes to the publisher, once it's finished and edited, I will send each of you a transcript and you can read it. And then you can tell me if inadvertently I said something about any of you that you want out. It'll come out. No questions asked. And at first they were okay about it. And then when it came down to it, they were not okay about it. And they begged me not to publish it. And they said, you did keep your word. There's nothing about us in it. And I said, then, then what's the problem? And basically what it came down to is they don't want people knowing who I am relative to them. I said, that's where I draw the line. That's what we need to work on. If that's the problem, then by me not publishing the book is not going to solve that problem. The book really cut it for most of them. One of them said to me, you used to be so angry. You're so peaceful and so gentle and so, actually, so nice to be with now. But in my heart, I've lost my father. I think I'd rather have a father who was angry. So I'm first and foremost to them. I'm their father. And they feel betrayed. I've, d I've done everything I can to protect them. But I don't believe they have to be protected from me. And that ultimately is, I believe, what they wanted to be protected from. Still, Yiska hasn't totally given up on the hope that her children will come back into her life. Every Friday night, when I light my Hadakat HaNerot for Shabbat, I light eight lights. One for me, one for their mother, and one for each of them. I say a special prayer that my children will once again be in my life with their, with their 
mates you know, with their spouse, spouses, spouse, spice, and my grandchildren, who I don't know. I don't know my grandchildren. They could be walking right here. I, I wouldn't know it's them. I pray. I don't know what else I can do. The pain that I endured when I was living as a man, nothing could be more painful than that. Because it was never-ending. It didn't matter what I did. It never went away. It was always there. I'm in a place now that people need to hear making a choice to live an authentic life is not like, oh, then the rest of my life will be all nice and smiles. My life is filled with a lot of smiles now. They're real smiles. But they're not only smiles. Real living is raw living. That story was reported by Molly Livingstone. She's a comedian and freelance reporter from Jerusalem. Till recently, Molly hosted the Big Falafel radio show on The Voice of Israel. You can check it out online. The piece was produced by Benny Becker with help from Raoul Woodliffe and Rachel Fisher. Music help from Shoshi Shmulovitz. We wanted to hear from Iska's children to get their perspective. We reached out to them, but the only one we were able to talk to told us very politely, but very firmly, that he really didn't want to talk or think about it. And he was sure that everyone else in his family felt the same, but probably even more strongly. Yiska teaches and podcasts and does a zillion other things to share her message of authentic living. If you want to dive deeper into her story, check out her book, 40 Years in the Wilderness, My Journey to Authentic Living. And that's our episode. We'd love to hear from you. Your thoughts, suggestions, comments. Email us at contact at israelstory.org. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on all our previous episodes. Just search for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. And if you've got a moment, please rate us and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Okay, So how many of you have heard about Audible, MailChimp, Stamps.com? And you know why? Because they have understood the power of podcast sponsorships. And if you want to enter that game, contact us. Not only will your sponsorships support our growing show, but you will also reach a phenomenally engaged audience. For more information, just email sponsor at prx.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Benny Becker, and Shoshi Shmulovitz. Rachel Fisher and Sophie Shore are our tireless production interns. Our executive producer is Julie Subrin. 
I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back actually sooner than you think with a big Israel Story surprise. Stay tuned. Yalla bye.